turn to Psalm chapter 91 today. I think it's a, uh, a psalm that certainly would speak to us in a time of, of upheaval, tumult. I'm going to read it out of the NLT. It will fit in with uh, Romans chapter 8. We'll be going there as well as we go on. But uh, I'd like to read Psalm uh, chapter 91, beginning now in verse 1. Uh, Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God, and I trust him, for he will rescue you from every trap and protect you from deadly disease. He will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. Do not be afraid of the terrors of the night, nor the arrow that flies in the day. Do not dread the disease that stalks in darkness, nor the disaster that strikes at midday. Though a thousand fall at your side, though ten thousand are dying around you, these evils will not touch you. Just open your eyes and see how the wicked are punished. If you make the Lord your refuge, if you make the Most High your shelter, no evil will conquer you. No plague will come near your home, for he will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up with their hands so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. You will trample upon lions and cobras. You will crush fierce lions and serpents under your feet. The Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. When they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue and honor them. I will reward them with a long life and give them my salvation. May God add a special blessing to reading his word, and let us just pause for prayer before we go any further. Father God, we thank you for the day that you've given to us. We thank you for this nation that, Father, you have allowed us to be able to worship and to be lift up your name and to praise you. Father, we would pray for our nation now in these days of which we find ourselves and all of the fear that is literally taken us by the throat. Father, as we've just read that Psalm 91, that literally, if we love you, we trust in you, then you are with us, you are protecting us, you are guiding us. Literally, Father, we are invincible. Father, we would ask for these moments before us that you would be fully and completely teaching us through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would be open and receiving of that. Father, we look with anticipation to what you will lead us to in truth. We would ask for those that are hearing this message, that you would bless them, that you would... Be with them, care for them. Father, fill their lives with courage. Fill them with knowledge. Fill them with trust. Father, above all, may you be praised and honored. And we'll ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Going then uh, back to Romans chapter 8, we uh, have continued on in that that, uh, chapter 8, really talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We've looked at The fact in verse 1 that there is no condemnation, literally, anymore for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. And the Holy Spirit has made that possible by freeing us from sin and death. We looked at that in verses 2 and 3. He's enabled us to fulfill the law in verse 4. He is transforming our nature from the inside out in verses 5 through 11. He's given us victory over sin by His power, verses 12 and 13. He confirms our adoption to be known that we are adopted sons of God is quite amazing. He's literally the one that's done that, verses 14 through 16. And he is guaranteeing our future, eternal glory, which we were looking to in verses 18 through 25. And then in verses 26 and 27, he literally aids our prayers. He knows exactly what we need when we don't even know. When we aren't able to pray, the Holy Spirit is praying for us in God's will. All of those things literally are giving us a picture of the course of action, the process of sanctification, and also the sense that the Holy Spirit has guaranteed that is of security. And last week we broke away for a moment, uh, for that week anyway, in regards to the Resurrection Sunday, and it actually tied in as well. If the resurrection is really the thing, the guarantee that sealed the deal, the Holy Spirit has become ours because of the fact that Jesus was risen from the dead. Um, I would like to go to, uh, to tying this back together. We'll start in verse 26 of Romans chapter 8, and we'll read uh, through verse 31, uh, beginning now at verse 26, where we see where the Holy Spirit is literally praying or groaning for, as it says there, 
um, and he's living within us. It says, likewise, verse 26, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself, think of that, the Holy Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he, just, whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? The passage of Scripture is so rich and uh, amazing, the, the concept of what God is promising to us there. Uh, and I would like to take a word, we, we normally would take this passage and talk about our security we have in Jesus Christ, which is literally guaranteed for us through the power of the Holy Spirit. I'd like to use a different word today. I would like to use a word that to me is maybe even more powerful. It takes away the, uh, uh, I guess I should say it adds to the sense of the fullness of what God is trying to do for us. And literally, those three verses, speaking of 28, 29, and 30 particularly, speaks about the Christian's invincibility. Uh, I don't know how many times that you use that word, but to say uh, to be invincible certainly is actually beyond the word powerful, if you will. And there's lots of questions that we find in the world we live today. Um, even... I mean, literally, the United States lifestyle has changed dramatically. Um, it, there is fear almost literally everywhere. The loss of security. Uh, those, at least for people that have maybe uh, likened or believed that their security is in money or power, things, houses, land, all of those things that literally are evaporating before their very eyes. And if there's a time today, if there's a time ever that we would need to exercise and to move forward with courage, it would be these days. And this passage of Scripture would certainly lend itself to giving us that, not because of who we are, but because of whose we are. So that's a term we will continue to use over the next uh, few weeks. We'll be looking at different uh, um, components, if you will, of invincibility. The first one we would like to do today is that of the extent of invincibility. And in verse 28 of Romans chapter 8 is where we'll be spending the bulk of our time today. Uh, but the launching point really literally will be in verse 31. Turn with me again to Romans chapter 8, verse 31, and it says, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Uh, it's interesting in that if you look at your scriptures today, you probably will see um, in the second statement where it says, If God be for us, who can be against us? Uh, the word um, from the KJV, you will see that the word be, the first one, and then can be, those are italicized, which means they were not in the original uh, manuscripts. So literally, if you remove those, you find that there are no verbs in that statement. So we could read it as such, if God for us, who against us? There's no action words. That's what verbs do. They present or convey action. The other thing that verbs do is there's a sense of time, a framework, uh, a past, a future, or a present sense of, of, uh, of action. And with those being absent, there really is it's a timeless situation. So literally, we're going all the way off into the eternity future with no one or anything that could literally be against us if God is for us. And even the word if, uh, that probably is not the best word there. It would be you could use because or since, because the fact of the Holy Spirit living within us, he is for us. So we could say, since God for us, who against us? And the obvious answer to that is no one. Uh, God has no opposite. He is mighty. He is omnipotent. He is supreme. There's no one that could be successful against him. And that literally is the condition of our invincibility. Thank goodness it's not up to just us. And when you think about that, that the invincibility that we are being offered, it's because God is for us. Let's go back to uh, that particular uh, 
thought process. Let's go back to uh, Genesis chapter 15, all the way back to Genesis. We find that God is speaking to Abraham. Genesis chapter 15, and you'll see somewhat of the same idea that is presented to us here in Romans chapter 8. So Genesis 15 and verse 1, it says this. After these things, now what things? Well, if you were going to go to chapter 14 of Genesis, I'll let you read that on your own. Uh, but literally, uh, Abram had went against, uh, into war and had fought those that had captured his nephew Lot and uh, had successfully beaten five kings and had come back with all of the particular treasures and his family, all of that being, and you would have to think as well that he would probably be in a position at that point to where he would be uh, very tenuous and they would probably be looking for revenge. They would be looking to take advantage down the road. And obviously that would be weighing on Abram, Abram's mind, but those are the things it says in verse 1, chapter 15. After those things, these things, I'm sorry, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. It's the very same thing. I'm for you. I'm with you. I am your shield. I am your rewards. And there's nothing to fear at that point. Just as today, as there's many unknowns, the loss, 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 I'm sorry, the loss of security, at least perception-wise, um, all of the fear that has displaced things of security, the very same thing takes place. We do not need to fear if we are in God's hands. Uh, turn with it to Numbers chapter 14. Again, we find a dilemma, a situation that seems to be uh, more than a casual disruptance. We find it in uh, Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. <clears throat> I think I'll get there. There we go. Numbers 14. And uh, we'll dive in that to this particular passage is dealing with a sense of the spies that had, that had went up to uh, take note of the land, the promised land, as God had promised it to them. And uh, there was 12 spies that went. And you all know the story. There was, uh, they were asked to give their, their view on what they had seen. And 10 of them very candidly said that they saw giants. In fact, uh, we were grasshoppers in their sight. It's a great place, but we certainly are not capable of being able to take uh, that land. We, we, we were just, it would be total futility. Well, there were two, though, that actually became, said something very different. We find those in uh, verse 9 of chapter, uh, Numbers chapter 14 and verse 9, the response only rebel not you against the Lord, neither fear you the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. The same situation. If God is for us, there's really literally no one to fear. And you know, unfortunately, they were outvoted democratically, uh, 10 to 2, and then for 40 years, they literally chased around that desert, going around the mountain, until all of that generation died, except for those two that remained full of faith and were trusting God. Let's go to the, to the Psalms for a moment. We will see some of the same concept of if God is with us, that we are invincible. Uh, Psalm chapter 27. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 27, and we'll look at verses uh, 1, 2, and 5. The Psalm of David, and it starts off in verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Verse 2. When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Verse 5. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. He literally is being described there as David's defender. His defender, his refuge. There was human em enemies that were in picture in Psalm chapter 27. Uh, go to Psalm 118. Turn over to Psalm 118 and verse 6. We find the same thought process here. Psalm 118. I'm wanting to explore this on a, on a greater level than we even find in Romans because it's a concept literally that is throughout the entire Word of God. Psalm 118 and verse 6. The Lord on my side, I will not fear. 
what can man do unto me? Back to Psalm chapter 46. Let's continue on uh, through a couple other of the Psalms. Psalm chapter 46, and one of many people's favorite verses is in verses 1 and 2. It says, 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Think of that for a moment. To think of that geographical upheaval and natural disaster to literally that mountains would be moved and be carried into the midst of the sea. A gigantic earthquake would be in view of that picture. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. In other words, let it be. Very same thing, a refuge and strength to be protected by God. Let's go back to the psalm that we'd read as we opened our session today, Psalm chapter 91, and let us look at what would be maybe the image, if you will, of a triumphant, secure person. Psalm chapter 91, verse 1, again it says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I can't think of any safer place to be. And he tells us why in verse 14 of the same uh, psalm, Psalm 91. Turn with me to verse 14. He tells us why all of these things that one can be a triumphant, secure, or invincible person. Because he has set his love upon me. Therefore will I deliver him. Those that love God, in other words, those are the ones that he will deliver. I will set him on high because he hath known my name or trusted me. Oh, same idea that we find uh, all through thus far. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 40. We'll continue on in our journey through the scriptures. Isaiah chapter 40. Look with me at verse 27. Isaiah 40 verse 27. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God. In other words, uh, why are you asking? God must, must not be watching, must not be looking. He's, he's, he's ignoring me. Verse 28. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. He knows everything. He's, he's a witness to everything that's going on before it even takes place. Verse 29. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Again, you see that God is for us. First uh, John, turn back to the New Testament now. First John chapter 4 and verse 4, uh, John very um, powerfully says something that it seems obvious, but he lays it out for us. First John chapter 4 and verse 4. And if you think about it, from the very standpoint that the Holy Spirit lives within us, God, the Holy Spirit, lives within us in verse 4 of First John chapter 4. First John 4, 4 says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That's a powerful verse and it's something we need to remind ourselves of, particularly when we're thinking about what he's promised to us in the sense of our invincibility. And again, I, I personally like the word to be invincible. We are invincible when we are in God's care. Now, if we go back to Romans chapter 8, and we're going to be looking now at verse 28, uh, we're, we're going to be looking at the sense of the first part of that. It says, and we know that all things work together for good. That's, that's literally from this point on now, the rest of our time together, we will be talking about just that section. And we know that all things work together for good. Hmm. Now that's a, that seems a little bit odd. How many of you have had everything that's happened in the last week? Think of everything that's happened in the last week. Did it seem like it was all good? Uh, no. No, it wasn't. I, I'll raise my hand. There's a lot of things that I did not see coming at me that seemed to be not very good. They seem to be very tr problematic. In fact, I felt a lot less than invincible, uh, a lot less. So there's actually two things we want to look at. Uh, in this, and again, we're talking about the, the, from the standpoint of the extent of invincibility, the extent of invincibility, and it literally is all things. All things. There's no limits. There's no limits at all to the things that work together for good. Now, that seems almost out of sight, too much, but... 
First of all, we're going to look at, and, and there's this, these verses now from 28 through 39, that's the passage we have left in chapter 8, it's going to be looking at it from a positive standpoint that God is working for our good positively, and then we'll be looking in verses 31 through 39 that nothing can work against us, and nothing can work to thwart God's plan. But we'll be looking at the positive aspects of that, the first component of uh, invincibility, that being the extent thereof, all things all things. Let's say it a different way. Uh, The opposite of saying all things work together for good would be say that nothing that happens to you works together for bad. Nothing that happens to you works together for bad. Even though you may feel like that might be the case, it is not true. Um, The other thing we work together. What, What comes across your mind when we think of things working together? Well, actually the word, uh, the Greek word, there we have gained an English word from it called synergy. Synergy. Um, and to think of that, literally, synergy is working things together, weaving things together, and actually bringing more than the sum of the uh, individual components. In other words, synergy was described to me the first time that I remember getting the term was one plus one equals three. It actually expands beyond the sense of what an individual component is because it's actually working together with a larger degree of synergy. And that in itself is something that God does extremely well. God is doing the weaving. He is doing the putting together, if you will. And the word good, we know all things work together for good. Have any of you had an Aunt Agatha? You've probably read a book, and there was always an Aunt Agatha somewhere, wasn't there? Well, actually, uh, the Greek word here for good is agathon, which means to be morally good. There's another word that could have been used, uh, kalos, which would mean to look good. Not necessarily being good, but externally it looks good. That's not the word he'd use here. He's literally using that that's intrinsically, uh, from the inside, morally good. It, it, It truly is good. It doesn't just look good. It is good. Now, how many of you uh, think about things that maybe didn't seem to be very good? I'd like to take you back to a story about a man. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 50. And there's a lot of Genesis that's really laid out and and, uh, beholden to this particular individual, a man that we've, amazing to me anyway, at a young age, as a teenager that was sold into slavery. And you know that of Joseph and his brothers. And you think of all of those mishaps. Think of all of those, those detours which would seem for his good. I mean, how was it good that he, that he literally um, pushed off the advances of Potiphar's wife and then ends up in prison because he did the right thing? Or he did the right thing and his brothers sold him into slavery. And it goes on and on and on. And you say, well, how could that be good? I want you to see from his very lips as he after Joseph's father and his brother's father died, and their guilt continued to be upon them. And let's go to Genesis chapter 50 and verse 15. When Joseph's Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure or certainly hate us and will certainly requite us for all the evil which we did on him. In fact, they're still considering all of the nasty things they did to their brother. They sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall you say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did did unto thee evil, and now we pray thee, Forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph probably said, I finally have the opportunity to do what I've always wanted to do to you, jerks. But that's not what he said. Look in verse 19. It said, Joseph said unto them, fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, watch now, this is very careful. But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is to this day to save much people alive. And, and you think about the term and the circumstances in which God used not so good things to bring Joseph to be in a position of, of not just authority, but to be in a place that he literally saved his entire family. And to think of that, God used all of those things in Joseph's life to literally bring good to him and to those, like, like he even says there, to save much people. 
Well, how does that happen? How does God use all things for good? How? Well, we actually read it in verse, let's go back to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And if you remember, we read something uh, which we were tying into a, a passage we were working on a couple weeks ago in the sense of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, has a, he's got a job, and he loves to do it. That's what I like. I like when God loves to do stuff. And literally, when you become a Christian, when you've trusted Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit then takes residence. You no longer are your own. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, it talks about that you are a, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives within you, and he is actively actively working all things to your good. He's interceding for us is the word that we find. He's interceding for us. And how does he do it? He's interceding for us according to God's will. He knows what God wants because he is God. He lives within us. The Trinity actually is very effective and fully. In fact, the Father's will is that all things work together. We've read that in verse 28. We also know that the Holy Spirit is interceding that all things work together for the good. And then there's not mentioned here, but we also know that the Son, uh, the, uh, God the Son, Jesus Christ, is literally, where is he at today? What's he doing? He's actively engaged in something. Now, we know that he walked the earth for 33 years. We know that he was crucified. We know he's buried, and he rose again. What happened after he was rose again? What happened? He went to the right hand of the Father, and he's presently right there, actively today, interceding for you if you're in Christ. He is being your defense attorney. Think of that. So the Father... The Son and the Holy Spirit are all working on your behalf to work all things together for good. Uh, that gives me a great deal of, uh, what should I say? Uh, I feel more invincible when I know that God is working on all of those fronts on my behalf. Now, God's power is working for our good. Uh, if, if you went back to the Psalms, and particularly in Psalm 46 and 91, I won't turn there right now, but we would already read through those. What is underlying of that protection? What is it? It's God's power. The very sense of the strength of God, his everlasting arms underneath of us. You think of him being as a refuge, standing in the shelter, the shadow of God. It's his power that literally works for our good. But also God's promises are working for our good. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4 whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And isn't that very true? Very, basically, God's promises, as you find all through the scriptures, literally are working for our good. Let's take a, couple, let's take a look at a couple of those. Psalm chapter 91, we've already been there. Psalm chapter 91, and I might have gotten this one wrong, actually. I think I've turned to the wrong psalm. So I'm going to bypass that one. I had Psalm 9151. That's not going to work out if you have a Bible that is of any value because there isn't 51 verses there. Try, let's try Psalm chapter 37. Psalm chapter 37 and verse 39. See how I did on that one. Yeah, there it is. Uh, psalm 37, 39. But the salvation of the righteous is of the Lord. He is their strength. In time of trouble. See, that's a promise. And look at verse 40. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. God's promises work for our good. But also prayer works for our good. Turn with me to James chapter 5. As we traveled through James some time back, it's one of the things that really stuck out. James chapter 5. And we find the fact that is displayed for us in verse 16, James chapter 5 and verse 16, it says this, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. Watch now. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Prayer has a great deal of strength, especially in working all things together for good. Um, I, would, I would also ask that you guys would, would be actively engaged in praying for one another brothers and sisters in Christ. Your prayer, according to that verse, avails much. Uh, here's one that you may not have thought about in things working for our good, um, but there are invisible beings that are working for your good. Turn with me to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14. Hebrews 1 verse 14. 
We'll start in verse 13. It says, But to which of the angels, this is chapter 1, verse 13, Hebrews, But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? He's saying, who did he say that to? He said it to Jesus Christ. But which of those did he say? No, he said, but are they not all ministering spirits? In other words, serving spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. Did you see that? Angels are literally working on your behalf to bring good about. I bet you didn't think about that one. But God is using angels to literally bring about good in your life, ultimately. So we find that God, His very nature, you also find that His Word is guiding us in all truth. We could go to the Psalms and find that Thy Word is truth, John chapter 17. Literally, His Word is guiding us in truth and allowing us to have all things work together for good. But also, other believers, as you're gathered, as you're listening to my voice today, the fact that we can encourage and to exhort and lift up those other believers is also a way for God utilizing them working for his good. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, this is a, a scripture that has become maybe more prevalent in, even in my life in the last number of weeks as we find it um, due to the lockdown, if you will, the sense of not being as freely open to be gathering. And I thought of how important it is for us to be engaged in that while we can. And uh, I remain... Uh, I remain very diligent and faithful to believing this. The times of, pa- of uh, services that we do have, I remain, I'm here. And if God brings someone here, that's great. And he knows how and the best way to minister to them. But we, we as a church are an essential service, regardless of what we may be thought of. But look at in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful, it promised. Now watch. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Remember, that word provoke is not, we would normally use it in that sense, but it's to encourage, to lift up, to literally push unto love and to good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And literally, I would have to say, as just a bit of a parenthesis here, that we are certainly seeing a precursor of the last days. You continue to see the the overarching sense of evil pushing against righteousness. I think when we look back on this time, we will see some sinister, evil uh, methodology that was utilized to place us in some of the situations we find ourselves today. There is a battle. There's a war. And that man of sin, that Antichrist, someday will literally be exposed to the world. And I think we're on a level of a precursor of that right now as we're approaching those last days. And that, that Hebrews chapter 10 is really talking about how important it is, especially during these times, to assemble and for ourselves as believers to working for the good of others. And all of that God is using to bring good things to work and complete. Now, as so far, we've talked only about good things. I mean, you'd all say, well, yeah, angels... Other believers, prayer, God's wisdom, basically God's nature, the very fact of who he's done and what, or who he is. And you think about the whole plan of salvation, it's based upon his goodness. And all of those things, yeah, that, we can see that. But Larry, you, you said all things, and all things aren't good. Well, I'm here to, let's talk about some bad things. Let's talk about bad things working for our good. That, I said that the way I intended. Bad things working for our good. That seems weird. But... One of the first things we want to talk about bad things is suffering. How many of you enjoy suffering? I'll bet you just wake up in the morning and cannot wait to suffer. There's no response. And I know where from my voice, you must think you're, you must be kidding, Larry. I mean, what are you, what are you talking about, suffering? Who, who signs up for that? Well, no one does, obviously. But see if you can find the little book of Ruth. We'll find the little book of Ruth, and I would like to uh, uh, look at chapter 1. Chapter 1, those of you that are searching through your Bibles, finding Ruth, it's on page 420, um, at least in my Bible, that is. But Ruth, chapter 1, and let's look at verse 21. Now, you know this, the background of all of this. Now, in fact, maybe it would just do us good. Let's just start in chapter 1, verse 1. It, maybe it's been a long time since you've uh, been renewed in your, in your reading. And just think of well, this is the background to this this story, verse 1, chapter 1, it says, It came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of 
Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. In other words, they're literally fleeing because of a very tragic a disaster that's taken place. A famine, if, and that's a serious, serious drought. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Chilion. Ephaphrolites of Bethlehem, Judah, and they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Chilion died also, both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. How's it going right now? If you're Naomi particularly, well, let's keep going. Verse 6, and then she arose with her daughters-in-law, and she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. In other words, back home, meanwhile, back at the ranch, if you will, um, their country had revived. Whereas she went forth, verse 7, of the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to your mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said unto her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are, you, are there not yet any more sons in my womb that, you may be your, that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband also tonight and should also bear sons, would you tarry with them till they were grown? Would you stay with them from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Are you see? Did you catch that? She feels like she's under the Lord's punishment. They lifted up their voice and wept again, and Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, and Ruth clave unto her. And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law has gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whether you go, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. And the Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught be death, part thee and me, thee and, and me. When she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. So they two went until they came to Bethlehem. It came to pass when they were coming to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them. And they said, Is this Naomi? And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me. Did you see that? That word afflicted. How many times have you felt like you were being afflicted? In honesty, most of us probably have had a time when we say, why me? And Naomi, she was having a chapter of that if Romans, in, Ruth, in Ruth chapter 1. She was suffering. And yet, I'll leave it to you, but if you read the rest of the book of Ruth and you start to analyze from from God's perspective, from the, I was going to say the 30,000 foot level, but literally from heaven's view, and you start to unpack all of this, and as much as Naomi felt that she was struggling and suffering under God's hand, God was literally taking bad things and using them to create a fantastic, invincible pattern. Because you know what happened? Ruth ends up marrying Boaz, and they have a son whose name is Jesse. And Jesse is the father of David, of which the scripture said that this coming redeemer, this Jesus, would come after the line of Judah, the king of David. Think of that now. What if, that, what if things would have went great? That was my biggest great I could come up with. In the land of Moab, guess who wouldn't have come home? Guess who wouldn't have married Boaz? Guess who wouldn't? Do you see what I'm saying? God uses suffering to bring about good in our lives. Think of Job for a moment. Uh, remember, let's go back to, let's find the book of Job. Job, and uh, we'll kind of dig into there a little bit. Job chapter 1. Let's start Job chapter 1. The other one I wonder about too, I, was just, just, I just was passing it right now, I just went through Esther. I always think about Esther as such a cool book because in all of that, it was a fat drama. I love going through Esther, seeing all of the drama surrounding about God protecting his people. His name is not mentioned one single time, and yet he's present in every single verse. But there was a question that, um, what was that guy's name? Uh, 
Esther's uncle. What was his name? Oh, shoot. Um, uh, Mordecai. Mordecai. Mordecai said, Esther, is it this time? Were you born for a time such as this? I'm going to ask that of us, of, of us today, all of those listening to my voice at this point. Is in this day and age, in the year 2020, were we born for such a time as this? I think so. He's taken us to a place that he can use us for someone else's good as well. Now, in Job chapter 1, you will find that literally Job said this in verse 21. Turn with me. Job chapter 1, verse 21. Now, I mean, he's lost it all. Literally, his family, his stuff, his camels, his sheep, his cattle, all of everything that made Job's operation what it was, and literally it was gone. And he replied, well, let's start in verse 20. Job arose, he rent or tore his mantle, shaved his head, fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Was he suffering? Immensely. In fact, as you go through the entire book of Job, you'll find that as his friends came in, it just got worse and worse and worse. And finally, God started to ask the why question. Why did you do this? And why did you do that? And God never did answer that question. He just started to declare who he was, the mightiness. And, and Job was humbled, truly, literally humbled, by the very aspect of how powerful God was. And ultimately, God took those difficult things, things that he certainly didn't understand or know anything about, Job I'm speaking of, and for us today to just see how Job responded and see how God was mightier and bigger than any of these bad things, he brought to him a better life, all things working together for good. Turn with me to Jeremiah. See if you can find the book of Jeremiah chapter 24. Now, Jeremiah had a tough road to hoe. He really did. He was, he was a prophet during a time of which the Babylonians intervened and carried them off, if you will. And uh, in fact, we'll get the picture of that in, verse, in chapter 24, Jeremiah, verse 1, speaking of Judah's captivity. It said, the Lord showed me, verse 1, chapter 24, Jeremiah, and behold, two baskets of figs were set before the temple of the Lord after that Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, carried away captain Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah with the carpenters and smiths from Jerusalem had brought them to Babylon. Okay, turn with down to verse 5. Verse 5, same chapter. Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans. Watch it. Don't miss those last two words for their good. Did you see that? Now, how would you, did you wake up and, and, your, and your kiddos, and I think of the mother and dad of, uh, of Daniel. We, we're not told anything about them. But to think of this, that literally they were taken to Babylon and it said, God said, it's for their good. Uh, I wouldn't vote that way. That sounds wild. But we know ultimately that it was for their good. It was for their good. I actually, I think now I'm thinking of Nebuchadnezzar right now. I'm just thinking about him. There's a man that was, I mean, he was on top of the world. He was the most powerful, probably literally, quite honestly, folks, he was the most single powerful man ever known on this earth at any given time. He ruled and reigned authoritatively, and I mean by himself. Now, if he would have been remained in that position when God really wouldn't have just literally like pulled the rug out from underneath him and made him for... What was that, seven years? He acted like a cow, basically? He's eating grass? What was, whose good was that for? Do you think he would have voted for that? Uh, tomorrow, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to be eating grass like a cow. I don't want to do that. Okay, but what did he do? It, it, what we'll be talking about in a moment. All of that was literally for Nebuchadnezzar's good because it said when he returned to praise the God that was more powerful than him, guess what? His mind came back to him. He was refreshed of who God was. God is refining us. He's humbling us. And literally, if you go back, you know why, why you could go back and say that for, the, for the, uh, the, land, the land of Judah to be taken by Babylon, what was the good? He literally purged idolatry from them through suffering. Suffering. James 1.12. Let's go there to James chapter 1, verse 12. 
Again, one of those passages I don't think any one of you have prayed probably for patience this week. If you have, you don't know how it works because there's only one way to get patience, and that's to go through some trials. James chapter 1, and let's look now at verse 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation or trials, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Ah, in fact, let's even go back to verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy. Count it all joy when you receive all of the good things from God. Oh, no, that's not what it says. It says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various temptations or trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Wow, what a way to get it. But you see, suffering actually is working for our good. Let's turn to 2 Chronicles. Let's go back to the Old Testament. 2 Chronicles. How's your Bibles? You're probably on fire now. The pages are getting warmed up. 2 Chronicles chapter 33. This is going to speak, I think, of the king that literally, because of his suffering, turned to God. 2 Chronicles chapter 33. We'll be looking at verses 11 and 12. 2 Chronicles chapter 33. This would be Manasseh, and he was one wicked dude. Verse, uh, in fact, it tells us in verse 1, chapter 33 of, uh, of Second Chronicles, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, but did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, like unto the abominations of the heathen, who the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So that gives you his nature, his character, if you will. And watch verse 11 and 12. Wherefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns and bound him with fetters and carried him to Babylon. When he was in affliction, ah, that sounds like suffering to me, what did he do? He besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him and he was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. Again, you see, we're suffering literally brought to place the good in this case, Manasseh. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's go back to the New Testament and let's look at the case of Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Again, these are all probably uh, passages that you're familiar with, but uh, it's amazing how when we sometimes forget about how God uses difficult things for His glory and literally for our good. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Oh, let's see here. Let's start in verse 7. Unless, this is Paul, unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. And he was given a vision, seeing heaven, if you will. And with that would have been some, I mean, some tremendous opportunity to be a little bit prideful. There was given unto me, verse 7, back to the text, a thorn in the flesh. How many would see a thorn in the flesh as being a desirable thing? You can even have just like a little thorn in your sock and your shoe. You get excited about, I want more of that, right? And just think about a thorn in the flesh. The messenger is saying to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. And I, for this thing, I besought the Lord thrice or three times that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. You see, suffering was given to give Paul a higher level of goodness, a higher level of goodness. See, suffering teaches us to hate sin. It makes us prioritize things that are important. Right now, I have to say this. Uh, the coronavirus, the COVID-19, and you look across our country, people are taking brand new looks of prioritization. There's things that meant a lot to them that today mean nothing to them. They are literally taking a brand new look at what's taking place. And there are opportunities for us as a church. There are opportunities for us in being Christians to reach out literally for the good of others. Maybe even at our, at our cost. I was uh, yesterday, uh, a good friend of mine was actually traveling. Uh, and uh, was across the state, and he said, I should have filled with fuel at home, but I didn't. I was going to go to Missoula and, uh, to fill up, and, you know, I just, just forgot. And so my little deal says, I'm not going to make it to Missoula. It says I've got, you know, you know how you've got your, your truck, and it says so many miles, and, and you, you, you do the calculation. This isn't going to work out. I better stop. So he actually ended up stopping in Drummond. And as he filled up to the fuel station, and he's feeling, here was a, there was a car sitting there where there was a, a young couple, and he said, just a couple of really young kids. He would have guessed them at like six months and probably two years of age. And this 
this uh, young man uh, approached him while he was fueling, and he said, I, I don't know how to, I, I've never done this before, and I, I don't, I, I, I just, I'm sorry, I just, and he, and he kind of broke down. And my friend said, he, you, you could see through the sense this is totally authentic. Well, they had been in Florida, he lost his job, and he did not have enough money to satisfy his rent. So they just literally got in the car, headed for Seattle, because he said, I have family there that I can at least have a place to sleep, to live, to be under a roof. And he said, we got as far here last night as Drummond, Montana, and I don't have any gas, and I don't have any money. And my friend, he said, I could tell that they had slept in the car. You could tell. And the man was broken. I was just say, I said to my friend, I said, I don't know what that would be like for me to literally going across the country, get to a place and you have nothing, and then to literally approach some. What a, that's pretty tough. Now, my friend pulled out his wallet. He had $102 in it, and he, he gave it to them, took his credit card, filled their car with gas. And you know what? That will get them as far as they need to go for the next person to help that family. That's how God works. That's how he works. And you know what? My friend was pretty excited. He said, today is a great day. He said, and I said, it's not even over. <laughs> anyway, so I, I think of that story. That's a live story. It just happened yesterday. And to see how God is using even difficult things. Now, what do you think about that family? And, and my friend was pretty sure that they were Christians. As they were praying the night before, isn't it cool that God just said to Billy, don't fill that fuel tank. Don't fill that fuel tank. I know exactly what I want to take you tomorrow. Isn't that great? That's great. That's good stuff. There's another story where there is. David White just sent me this. Two hours before service. Yep. And then it's the card. Please pray for Andrea. She's one of the children in Honduras who ministered to her and her family. She died Monday from pneumonia. She's nine years old. Wow. And it's on David. Yeah. What, what do you say? Yeah, what do you say? But God is bigger. He's bolder. And you know what? That little girl more than likely is in the arms of Jesus today. And that's the part that we have to get a grip on is that it's not just this life. Now, I'm talking about really literally this far. We're about to change gears a little bit. In this, well, we're not yet because you know me. I, go, I wander on for a while. But all of these things are literally surrounding the life which we find ourselves living here. But that's the really cool thing about being invincible. It doesn't matter what happens here on earth. We are invincible because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on Calvary's tree, and the Holy Spirit has guaranteed us that for eternity we are invincible because of whose we are. Now, where did I leave you? I got, I got sidetracked there for a second. Um, oh, yeah, I was talking about really what suffering does. It, it makes us prioritize. It teaches us to hate sin. Now, one of the things, remember last week, um, those of you who were listening, we talked about the resurrection, sealing the deal, and all of those that are in Christ, truly in Christ, one of the things we know is that they love God and that they hate sin. And suffering teaches Christians to hate sin more than anything. It drives our soul to God. It literally pushes, uh, brings us to Him. And you know, ultimately... Uh, let, take, take your Bible, turn back to Romans. You know, God's goal in all of this, all of, the, all of salvation wasn't just to save us. You will find his ultimate purpose in verse 29 of Romans chapter 8. Now, it does say, we'll start in verse 20, even though I want to come back, just holding our, our thought process to that first part, and we know that all things work together for good. But if you continue, it says, to them that love God, to them who are the called, what? According to his purpose. What is that purpose? For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Watch. He had determined beforehand that all of those in Christ would be conformed to the image of his son. And do you know what conforming is? That's another word for suffering and painful. You don't just all of a sudden, poof, and you're a little Jesus. It takes energy. It takes time. It takes suffering. It takes pain as he's chipping and molding and making you all of what he wants you to be in Jesus Christ. And you know what, you know what suffering does? It makes us want to go to heaven. It makes you want to go to heaven. What a great place. What a great place to be. It really literally shows us where our true citizenship is. Paul was even talking about in the little book of Philippians on numerous occasions. He said, man, I'm going to go see Jesus. I want to go home. I'm a citizen of our heaven is my, where my citizenship is holding. So first of all, we are back to our just holding things together outline wise. Uh, bad things that work for our good is suffering. 
We went through a number of those situations. Bad things that work for our good, suffering being the first. And then the second one is struggling. Struggling. Struggling with temptation particularly. Just think of that. I mean, it's, that is such a war, isn't it? That struggle that you continually are just, oh, it stretches you. But I'll tell you what struggling will do. It will send you to our knees. In those middle of the nights in that 2 to 3 o'clock in the morning where it just seems like it's pressing in on the struggle that takes place, literally the best place to be is on your knees before God. It drives us to God. You know what it does? It also devastates pride. It takes pride out of you. Struggling will move you towards humility. It shows that we're weak and we need the Lord. It allows us to help others. I just told you of that little story, and I, I think of that in, in times, and it's, it's not easy for a lot of us, but... Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I, this is a passage that I normally use in doing uh, funerals and memorials because it's so true. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. We'll start in verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all of our tribulation, all of those struggles, all of those struggles. Why? That we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. You see, when we're struggling and God works us through it, it allows us to be helping others as well. Thinking about the sense of desiring heaven, turn back to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. Philippians 1, 23. Uh, Paul, again, being so candid as he's, he's in prison while he's written this little letter to the Philippians. And he says in verse 23... <laughs> Verse 21, we'll start, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I know it's to heaven's on his mind, but if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I would shall choose, I don't know. I want not, for I am in a straight, I'm in a pickle, if you will, betwixt two, having a desire to depart. I want to go to heaven and to be with Christ, which is far better, but nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. As I'm here in this prison and I'm writing this letter to you, it's better for you that I'm here writing, but I'd just as soon go home. I'd rather go home. I'd rather go to be with Jesus. You think about the sack of struggling and suffering literally drives us to God drives us to God. Now, there's one. This one here will maybe take you back a little bit, but literally sin is a bad thing that is for our good. And I'm not talking about sin in itself, not in and of itself, but what the power of God can overrule, its power and effect. In other words, sin in and of itself, uh, what I'm not saying, make sure, make, make sure you understand this, I'm not saying to just go out and sin so that God can literally show his power uh, and, and his authority over. No, no, no. I'm not saying that at all. But what I do want to think of, let's think of David for a moment. David, the man that was after God's own heart. And when he was, he should have been working. He should have been out going where the kings go in the, middle, in the springtime. Supposed to be out at war. I, I don't know. You know. What was he doing? He was relaxing. He sent, the, he sent the, the troops out to go do his stuff. And on that one night, he saw Bathsheba bathing across the way on the roof. And literally within a matter of days... David, God's king, was guilty of adultery, murder, deceit, and about every other imaginable thing that just, I, you, I, I bet he just couldn't believe what, how did that happen? I mean, you, it must have just taken him, and again, sin's pretty cool, how it does that? Not that it's pretty cool, it's pretty bad, because it just literally just takes life without you even recognize the sinisterness of it. And it literally must have been just like, well, in fact, Psalm 51 talks about it. Write that, jot that down in your notes. Uh, Psalm 51, that's one that he wrote after the fact. And literally, his bones were aching from the sense of all of the weight of that sin. And that was all bad, by the way. Adultery, murder, deceit, all, all bad. But out of it came good. That's what I'm talking about. What can come out of sin is good. Brokenness, confession, godly sorrow, repentance, and praise. God overruled those sins with its ultimate effect, where we know that the wages of sin is death, and that ultimately would mean eternal death. Those that die without Jesus Christ, it's not just physical death, it's eternal death. To be forever in hell. Think of that. And yet God paid, or had the price paid through Jesus Christ. How? By the of His Son. And sin, it teaches us humility. I know when we fall prey to sin, and, and it's amazing, it's amazing after you sin, you say, oh, I... 
I missed it. Why didn't I see that? I can't believe it. And Satan's tactics are so basic. They're so continual, the same thing. It's not like he has a new playbook and he's got a new trick that he uses in 2020. No, they're kind of the same old thing. The lust that we have within our heart. But I'll tell you what, sin will teach us humility. It will teach us to be thankful for a God that is able to have taken sin's power and placed it in subjection because of the penalty that was paid by Jesus Christ. And again, His purpose is to conform us to the image of His Son. That's literally what God is doing in our lives. He's all about wanting us to be conformed to the image of His Son. Now, these things that we talked about, again, I'll come back and reiterate that, that all of this is in this life, the life that we have on earth, but literally the good that we're speaking of is our ultimate glory, our ultimate glory. In fact, turn back with me to Romans, once again, to chapter 8, and we find, I'd like to maybe read the, let's read that uh, verse 30 again, and we'll look at a couple more verses here. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, we'll be looking next week at the last, in fact, let me, let me just back up for a second before I do that. Um, maybe we'll start in verse 28. Now, all we've done today is to say that we, we know that all things work together for good. That's good things and bad things that work together for good. Next week, I'd like to look at to whom is invincibility promised? And we will find it's to those that love God. Now, watch this. He says in verse 20, let's read it differently. I'll see what you think. And we know that all things work together for good to them that are saved. It doesn't say that. And we know that all things work together for, for, to good for those that have accepted Christ. No, it doesn't say that. Why did he say this? We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Why does he say that? Because that's literally what happens if you've trusted Christ as Savior. The one thing we know for sure, even though you'll be subject to falling and you will fall into sin here and there, it will not be a habit any longer, but it will, you will love God and hate sin. And that's where all things work together for good. It does not work to good for those that don't love God. Keep that in mind. We'll be looking at that uh, next week. But let's continue now in verse 28. We'll read several verses. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are, I'm sorry, to them who are the called, according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And obviously, the answer is no one. So, ladies and gentlemen, if there's ever been a time to step it up, it is times like this. And knowing that you are invincible. Think of that. You are invincible because of what God is doing in your life. He's taking good things. He's taking bad things. He's taking the all, other, all kinds of things, and he's working to make you the best that you can ever possibly be, and he's conforming you to the image of his son. And that is all under the sense of the extent of invincibility, and it's all things. Now, I'm sure in this last week there are some things that you just cannot figure out how in the world that those things could actually be making you better. But I tell you, that's what's cool about the scriptures. It's talked about a new, we looked at a number of situations where literally we are, th those people became better. They became stronger. God was glorified and they were made better in all things that has taken place. He's able to do that. He's able to weave that together in making them everything that he wants them to be. So with that, we continue to see in Romans chapter 8. I don't know. Do you think we'll get through Romans chapter 8? Now it's looking like it's going to take a few more weeks. But with that, let's just close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your love, for your care, for your understanding. And Father, your overarching strength and power of working for our good and your glory. Father, we thank you that you can take difficult things. You can take things that aren't good, things that are literally bad in and of themselves. And you allow us to become better as a result of it. Father, that's my prayer for all of those today that are hearing my voice in a place, literally, this world today has gone crazy. Our whole world is in upheaval. But it's a time for us to step up, to step up and to be Christians that are invincible and live like it. How do we do it? We do it 
by sharing the love that comes from within us. Father, I thank you for situations that will come in our lives through this course of this next week. There will be opportunities for us to share the love that you've placed within us. Father, I would pray that you would bring those into our lives, that we would recognize them, that we would be ready and open to be everything you want us to be because that's all part of being conformed to the image of your Son. Father, may you take the good things and the bad things. And Father, just hold us firmly in the palm of your hand, in the shadow of the Almighty, as it's even said in Psalm chapter 91. May we be immersed with your protection as you provide for us, as we become stronger and even more good than we've ever been because of who you are. We ask these things in Christ's name.